If you have a Bible, we will be back in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And I encourage you to have a printed Bible in front of you because we'll be running through this passage back and forth um, throughout our time together. So if you don't have a, a printed Bible, there's one in the pew back in front of you, and we'll be on page 891. So John chapter 6, starting in verse 22. So this past week kicked off the Southern idolatry season, otherwise known as college football. And inside that idolatrous season are two festivals where we eat the most as Americans. Thanksgiving, and at the end of the season, Super Bowl. Super Bowl Sunday is the second largest eating day in the country. The first, obviously, is Thanksgiving, but more food is consumed on Super Bowl Sunday than any other Sunday outside of Thanksgiving. So on Super Bowl Sunday, we have 270 million avocados made into guacamole. That could fill a football field 30 feet deep. So if you want to swim in some guacamole, there's your chance. 11 million pounds of potato chips, enough chips to cover the state of Arizona. 12 and a half million pounds of bacon to our pastor, the former pig farmer. That's 22,700 hogs. That's a lot of bacon. Domino's alone expect to sell 11 million slices of pizza. 1.3 billion chicken wings are sold. That's enough for four for every American. Praise the Lord. That's enough chicken wings to stretch from Seattle to Massachusetts five times over. And it's no surprise that antacid sales jumped 20% that weekend as well. And one out of every 10 or so workers call out sick that Monday. What does this tell us about Americans? Well, it means we like to eat and eat and eat and eat. We like to stuff ourselves with very unhealthy yet very tasty foods. But these appetites, the way we consume and how much we consume really are indicative of other appetites, other desires, other passions in our lives and how we fill them. We all have appetites. Well, it's physical appetites for food, for drink, for comfort, for warmth, for shelter, for sex, for provisions, for wealth. There's mental and emotional appetites to be loved, to be in charge, to have people like you. We all know the feeling when those appetites don't get filled. They rage within us. Our culture says if you have an appetite for something, you must go and fill it. If something or someone gets in your way, you take charge, you manipulate, you deceive to make sure that you get that. Remember the Snickers commercials? Hungry? Oh, why wait? We've even invented a new word. When we get hangry, when we are hungry and don't get food, and I pray that we don't get that before we end this message today. <laughs> we all want these appetites to be silenced, to be filled. When we're hungry, we grab something to eat. When thirsty, we grab a drink. When cold, we grab a blanket. When we want people to like us, we tell jokes to make them laugh with us, to be entertained so they'll stick around. But most of these appetites are not just physical, they are spiritual. Our physical appetites always point to something deeper. They affect our body and our soul, our heart and our mind. So when it comes to our soul and we get a soul hunger, what do we fill it with? What do we crave deep down in our hearts? There's a void in all of us that we are seeking to fill that yearns to be satisfied. And we're all seeking to quiet that hunger. And this is the hunger that Jesus is seeking 
to expose in the people that have been chasing him around the Sea of Galilee. Two weeks ago, we saw that Jesus fed almost 20,000 people with bread and with fish. Then he walks on the water through the night, and they arrive at the other side of the sea. And so Jesus has provided these people a full lunch, allowing everyone to eat till they were filled, till they were satisfied. But that one meal was not enough for those people. They wanted more. And so we meet the people on the next day. So we'll look to our passage, John chapter 6, starting in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they got themselves into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And so the people didn't know what had happened through the night. The disciples, they had saw leave across the, the sea in a boat. Jesus disappeared. So these people want to know where Jesus is. But they weren't aware of Jesus' late night stroll on the water that we looked at last week. They didn't see his encounter with the disciples. They didn't see Peter's near drowning. They didn't see the miraculous journey to the opposite shore. All they knew was Jesus was on the east side one night. He disappears, and suddenly he's on the northwest side in Capernaum. That's a distance of over 10 miles by foot. And so whether these people walked 10 miles on foot or they paid for a boat ride across the sea, they are desperate to find Jesus. They've traveled through the day and maybe through the night to find him. They're hungry for more. Jesus has fed them. Jesus has taught them, and they want more. So when's the last time you've walked 10 miles for something? When's the last time you paid for a boat ride to go desperately to find something? This is what the people are hungering for. But what are they actually looking at? Why are they trying to find Jesus? The crowds have an appetite that they long to be filled, but Jesus is about to expose their misplaced appetites and invite them to a bigger and better feast. Let's continue reading. Verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because of the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do? that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Give us this bread always. Jesus said back to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, 
but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up in the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so the people have found Jesus in a synagogue, and they start to have this conversation. And this conversation really lasts through the rest of the chapter that we'll unpack over the coming weeks. And so this back and forth is going to reveal to the people and to us what Jesus is really trying to do. They have this dialogue, and Jesus is going to poke at their appetites. He's going to expose their misplaced cravings for the physical buffet and replace it with a proper yearning for a spiritual feast. And he has the same conversation with us. How are you seeking to satisfy the hunger that is in your soul? It's easy to go out here in just a few minutes and fill your belly with the most delectable foods that you could possibly imagine. But what happens when that goes away? That hunger, that yearning, that desire in our souls, how does it be filled? So Jesus will do three things for us today. First, he will expose our misplaced desires. He will expose our misplaced desires. Through this conversation, he will begin to turn their thinking away from their belly, the physical and the temporal, and towards their soul, the eternal, the significant, the spiritual. And so to deconstruct their desires, he will point out their misunderstandings and their motives. And so let's look at their misunderstandings first. And I'm sure... Husbands and wives, you've never been misunderstood before, right? And so I heard a story a, a couple weeks ago that really put misunderstandings in perspective. Because misunderstandings can be funny if you tell your husband to go get something at the store and he comes back with 18 different other things. But I heard this story. Two hunters were out in the woods hunting, and one of them suddenly collapses. So his buddy gets on the phone. His, the, his friend is on the ground twitching, and he suddenly goes quiet. Eyes roll back in his head. He stops breathing. So he calls 911. The emergency operator picks up, uh, excuse me, what's your situation? Hi, my friend. I think, I think my friend is dead. What do I do? The emergency operator suddenly says, all right, sir, calm down. Let me take charge of the situation. Don't panic. I can help. She first asks, uh, first, make sure your friend is really dead. After a few seconds of silence, a shotgun blast rares to the phone. The hunter comes back on the line and says, okay, what now? So misunderstanding can be funny, but sometimes misunderstandings can be deadly. So if we misunderstand Jesus here, the consequences for us can be fatal. So let's look at their misunderstandings. First of all, they misunderstand the nature of this sign. They have misunderstood the spiritual for the physical. Look in verse 26. Jesus gets right to the point. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And so these people in the crowd wanted Jesus because he offered them a free lunch. And then they get up the next morning, and they're hungry again. So they want their bellies to be filled again. They wanted another free meal. So their main motivation for running around the lake to seek Jesus was that they would not go hungry that morning. And the word for eat here, he says, because you ate your fill of the loaves, that's the same word that's used for feeding livestock. So he's saying you people in this crowd are like hungry barn animals coming to the trough 
and ravenously consuming whatever I throw in front of you. Not a very flattering compliment here. Jesus was their meal ticket, their personal caterer, and once he disappeared in the middle of the night, they were desperate. They were frantic to go find him because they had misunderstood what Jesus was trying to teach them in this miracle. The nature of the feeding of the 5,000, the nature of that sign, wasn't that Jesus would fill their physical needs. Although he does that, in his kindness, in his compassion, he feeds them on the hillside more than they could stand. They had their fill. Jesus is using this illustration, this sign, to point to a deeper, more spiritual truth. And there's an important parallel between this miracle, this sign, with the Old Testament. In Exodus 16 and Numbers chapter 11, we read about the people of Israel who've been recently redeemed from Egypt. They've gone out into the desert, and in the desert, there's not a lot to eat. And when you get a million people out in the desert who are hungry and thirsty, they start to what? Complain and grumble. And Jesus, or God, through Jesus, through Moses, sends them manna in the morning and quail at night. He feeds them. And so the Lord has provided for every physical need for the people back in the desert, in Sinai, through the wilderness. God is protecting his people, providing them food, providing them water, providing them shelter, providing them shoes that don't wear out. And so the Lord has sovereignly provided for all of their needs, and he's miraculously served up manna in the desert, just like Jesus provides food to the hungry crowd in the wilderness on the side of the Sea of Galilee. And just like the Israelites, back in Moses' day, the crowd around the Sea of Galilee don't understand the meaning of the miracle. They're staring at the sign, holding in their hands, ingesting it to their bodies, but they cannot grasp the full and accurate meaning of what's going on. In the sign that Jesus performs, all they can see is bread. And in the bread, they cannot see the sign. They cannot see beyond their physical needs. Their belly is still growling. That's all they can hear. They misunderstand the lows, what they were supposed to be pointing at. We know that because further, they misunderstand the source and the substance of the bread that Jesus offers. So the people will say this in verse 31. The people respond to Jesus. He says, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So Jesus replied and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the true bread is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So you can see that they're just not understanding what Jesus is laying down here. They're talking past one another. They misunderstand what's going on because they could only see the physical loaf in their hands. They couldn't see the true bread who is standing and speaking to them. All they can see is manna, and they've missed the Messiah. So in verse 6, go back to the feeding of the 5,000 in verse 6. Jesus comes to Philip, and he asks them, Philip, what would you do to feed this big crowd? And Philip starts to calculate it up, and he can't do it, because Jesus is using this to test Philip and the disciples. In the same way, he's testing the crowd here in verse 20, or 33. Just the same way as God tested the Hebrews in the wilderness. Would they see and understand the source and nature of the bread that God sends to his people? Were their physical appetites awake within them, a longing for something deeper in their soul? Or they come just to the table to fill their bellies and walk away? Would they see that man needs to live on more than bread alone, more than pickled fish, 
more than barley loaves, more than chicken wings, more than broccoli and blueberries. Do they, do we see and understand that while our stomachs can be satiated with all of these good things, all the grandest and heartiest of foods, that our souls and our hearts can remain empty and ravenous? Moses points out this, uh, this truth here in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Moses tells the people, and he tells us this, and he, that's God, and God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Why? That he may make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It's the same verse that Jesus quotes to the devil in the desert after he is hungry, because Jesus, like Moses, know that man does not live on physical substances alone. They need something more. We need to be filled in our soul and our hearts at the deepest level of our being. St. Augustine said, You, O Lord, have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. C.S. Lewis would say, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And so we can come and we can fill our lives with all kinds of things and still be left empty and broken. So the point that Jesus is making, the people can't comprehend it. Because did you catch the phrase, as we read through the phrase, from heaven? It comes up over and over again in this exchange. And so in verse 31, the people quote from Nehemiah and Psalms, they quote this. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And the phrase from heaven is a euphemism. It's what the Jews would use in place of the name of God. So when they're saying it's from God, it's an implicit reference. If, when they say from heaven, it's an implicit reference back to God. But they don't see the heavenly Father at work here. They don't see God as a source. They see Moses and Jesus making all of this happen. They can't see past this bread, past who's giving it out to the one who is giving and providing the true bread. Did you catch that subtlety in Jesus' exchange there? My Father gives you the true bread. There's something that stands behind this barley loaf and this pickled fish. It's not gluten or flour, it's flesh and blood. The people have misunderstood the source and the substance because Jesus will also continue to tweak their misunderstandings because he changes pronouns in the middle of this. He says, referring to the bread, the people are thinking of it as an it. Well, God provided it, the bread in the desert, but Jesus says that he has provided a him. Verse 33, my father gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. See, words, small words, pronouns, prepositions matter as we read the Bible. Jesus is subtly poking holes in their motives, in their misunderstandings, to show them what is true and accurate. So when they ask for Jesus to give them this bread also, they're the, like the woman at the well in chapter 4 said, oh, you can give me this water that will satisfy me forever so I don't have to keep coming back to the well? You can provide me this bread that I don't have to go out to the store and keep buying. They're still seeing it all in physical form. They think God is just going to give them through Jesus another form of manna when they don't realize that the true bread is the Messiah who's standing in front of them. And their misunderstanding intensifies as they mistake the work of God. 
Look in verse 28 and 29. So then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so like many of us, we are often tempted, we're wondering, what am I supposed to do to earn God's favor? What am I supposed to do to help pay God back? They rightly want to follow God and to know God and to do what he says, but their thinking about God's relationship is misunderstood. It's, It's upside down. And so let's say this week someone invites you over to their house for dinner. And they spread out this glorious feast on the dining room table. And you sit there for hours and partake of everything that they have prepared. Then on your way out the door, you pull out your wallet and says, Well, thanks for the meal. Here's $40. What's that going to tell you, your host? Or you say, Oh, they prevented this, this spread. They gave us all this food. What do we have to do for them next week? We've got to one-up them. We've got to do better than they did. You don't do that. And if you do that, you're not coming back to my house. Because we're providing you a meal. A host is going to provide you a meal because they want to bless you, to encourage you, to be with you. It's not doing something to earn that meal. It's just saying, thank you, that was wonderful, that was amazing. And so whatever their motivation here in the crowd, they believe that they could please God by doing the works of God. But Jesus says that the work is singular. God desires us to believe, not perform, Not labor, not accrue merit, not try to pay back, but to simply believe, to trust, to have faith. So to work for the food that endures is to believe on Jesus. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, not trying to obtain, not trying to pay God back. Because you can't pay God back. Everything is from him anyway. He has given you all things. There's nothing you can return back to God. So what does God want from us? To see, to come to Jesus, and to believe on him. Or to use a parallel, to see Jesus for who he really is, to savor him, to treasure him, to be satisfied in him. They misunderstood the physical for the spiritual. They wanted the manna over the Messiah, and they would rather be devoted to duty rather than delight. These misunderstandings, these Misplaced desires have led to impure motives as well. So the crowd's end goal, remember, is to find Jesus, which is a noble and honorable goal. But Jesus is is the solution and satisfaction to their every need, but they go at him with the wrong motivation. They can only see the physical realm. They want a full belly and an earthly king. They want Jesus to do for them what they want in their Temporal, personal, prosperity, political agenda. They want a king who will put a roof over everybody's head, a chicken in every pot, an extra zero in everybody's paycheck, to kick out the Romans, to make Israel powerful and independent, to be at the top of political and military power. Remember, after he feeds them, they want to make him king. These motives, all these motives are selfishly driven. They want a Messiah that looked like them, that talked like them, that built a kingdom for them. They built a God that modeled everything that their hearts desired. Their desperation was to have a Messiah in their image, to install their version of God on their throne. They wanted a Jesus they could control and one who would serve their needs and wants. 
So what drives your search for Jesus? What motivates you to find and be with Jesus? Are you seeking a Jesus for personal prosperity? Do you just want a full belly? Do you want Jesus to be like a butler or a genie that you can call up whenever you want? Is he only here to provide for your wants and your desires? Jesus is not a ticket to personal prosperity. He doesn't grant your good and your best life now. His calling is to glory, yes, but that calling to glory does not come through creature comforts. It comes through crucifixion. Jesus is not here for your personal prosperity, nor is he here to be a present power. He's not an earthly king. So do we use Jesus? Do we co-opt him? Do we manipulate him? Do we push him? Do we make Jesus into a power play for our tribe or our personal brand? Do we only kind of stick him on like a bumper sticker so we'll be ascendant and powerful here? Is he a spokesman, spokesman for our political agenda? For our individual triumphs? Jesus will not be co-opted into our temporal, political, or personal power grabs. His kingdom is not of this world. He's not a mascot who cheers on your dreams and your uh, ambitions or a talisman that we kind of rub for favor or good luck. Jesus corrects our understandings and exposes our impure motives by revealing to us that we have misappropriated him often. We've only sought him for our personal benefit. So Jesus begins to reorient the crowd and reorient orient back us back to his vision and his true faith in him. He deconstructs the Jesus idols that we've made for ourselves, and he begins to reveal his true nature and opens us up to a grander and greater vision of who he is and what he's come to do. Because every idol that we construct, every little king, little king Jesus that we make, Jesus is so much better than that. And so he uses this little meager meal of fish and bread, which sounds delightful. Who wants to go home and eat some barley and pickled sardines today? That's what they wanted. That's all they wanted. But Jesus offers them a better invitation, a better banquet. And so we see Jesus first expose their misunderstandings and motivations. Secondly, Jesus extends his invitation. <clears throat> Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus is offering the invitation. They want this bread always, and Jesus says, here it is. Here am I. And this invitation, look, it, it, it's given in three ways. First of all, it's given graciously. It's graciously offered. Notice that he gives this invitation to everyone standing there. It's a universal call. Whoever, if we were to translate this into Southern, he'd be like, all y'all can come to dinner and feast on me. And he gives this call to everyone then and everyone today. It's graciously offered. He gives them more than they can handle, remember? They're filled until they could eat no more. It's a gracious God. A miserly God would have kept just enough. He wouldn't have given an abundance. A capricious God would have given a little bit here and a lot over here. He'd vary the amount to the people sitting there. A vindictive God would not have given any to them who grumbled. An unmerciful God would have withheld bread from everybody. A gracious God gives an abundance. The offer of bread and for satisfaction is given to everyone, even today. This offer is for you today, for the non-Christian, the pagan, the rebel, 
the hungry, the hurting, the broken, the one overwhelmed by your sin, the one left hollow and empty by the fleeting promises of this world. Jesus says, come, eat, and live. And this invitation is not just for the non-believer, but it's for the believer, for the Christian. It's not a one-call time, a one-time call to feast on the Son of God. It's one that's continual, that's daily, that's hourly, it's moment by moment. Once you've tasted and seen, you can return to the table to eat again and again. For the Christian who is tired, who is suffering, who's embittered, who's persecuted, who's weak, who's lame, who's hopeless, the call goes out to us again today, come, eat, and live. And it's graciously offered, but also it is eternally fulfilled. This invitation is an eternal feast. The language here, to eat and drink, to never hunger, to never thirst, is eschatological. It looks to the end of time. Jesus is talking with eternity in mind here. And throughout the Bible, the language of eating and drinking, hungering and thirsting, is intertwined with God's relationship between himself and his people. The vision that John, this same John who wrote this, his vision at the end of time culminates in a banquet scene where the bride sits down with her husband to eat and drink after the wedding. Notice the bread and the water that he provides is not something extraneous to himself. It's not saying, here, I've got bread over here. No, the bread, the water, is Jesus himself. By offering up his own body and his own blood, Jesus offers and provides satisfaction for all of us. It's not something extra that he gives He is the bread of life. He is the water of life. So the satisfaction that Jesus provides is necessary for our souls in the same way that food and water are necessary for us to live physically. But like a physical hunger, it may be satisfied only for a few hours. This satisfaction that Jesus provides is forever. So think about this satisfaction. This satisfaction is immediate This immediate satisfaction is forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, the righteousness of Christ. It's salvation from wrath and ultimate destruction. It's a complete satisfaction. Because think about if you were to go home and eat some Chinese food for lunch, you'd be be full in about 20 minutes. But you'd be hungry about 40 minutes later. Isn't that just like most of our appetites today, that we're satisfied for a little time with a meal, a vacation, a ball game, clothes, or experiences? But like the Chinese dinner, it's only gone in a few hours. But God doesn't let us down. He doesn't quit. What we read at the beginning of our service in Psalm 36, for in you is the fountain of life. It's not a pool that we go to and once it's gone, it's gone. It's a fountain that continually overflows. It's a complete satisfaction, but it's also a continual satisfaction. Because there's a paradoxical fulfillment here. Once we hunger and thirst, we come to Jesus, we're going to want more. Not because he doesn't satisfy us, because it's that good. We continually go back to him, and we go back to him for all eternity, now and forever. Our eternal soul is cared for by Jesus. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't forsake us. His satisfaction lasts as long as he does, which is forever. And so we see this invitation is eternally fulfilled and graciously offered, but it's unbelievably rejected. The offer is universal in its reach. It goes out to everybody in the crowd, but it's limited in in its applicability. Very few heed the call. Most outright reject it. They don't come to the table. Notice in verse 36, Jesus' devastating response. 
But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. Jesus has just offered himself as the bread of life, but he turns right around and says, you don't get it. You don't see it. How is that possible? They have seen everything that Jesus has done. They've seen sign after sign after sign, miracle after miracle, healing after healing. Yet the eyewitnesses refuse to accept this offer. Jesus has provided this, but they don't see and believe. So is Jesus' message failed here? If Jesus speaks to his words and they don't feed on him, has he crashed and burned? By no means. Remember the rich young ruler? He comes to Jesus asking something similar. He says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus basically says, you need to forsake all of your riches, all of your wealth. Come and follow me. You say goodbye to the world and you follow after me. And the original mirror says, ah, that's not good enough. I'll keep all my toys, all my wealth, all my fame. And he walks away sad. And the disciples are dismayed. What, what has happened here, Jesus? This rich young ruler, he's the one who should be saved. And they're probably saying the same thing here in John 6, saying, hey, look at all this crowd. You mean none of them see and believe? Well, then who can be saved? That's the question from verse 36. It sounds like, no one is going to come. No one's going to eat. No one's going to live. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't stop in verse 36 and walk away. Hey, you don't get it, guys? I'm done with you. See you later. He doesn't do that. He continues on. And lastly, Jesus not only offers and extends this invitation, he ensures our satisfaction. So left to ourselves, we won't come to Jesus. Try as we might, we can never see and believe in our own strength. Sin has left us deaf, blind, and lame, unable to respond to this invitation of Jesus. The rejection of the crowd and their inability to follow Christ's call is seen from man's perspective. But what happens when we see the situation from God's perspective? Well, verses 37 through 40 give us a clue. They will offer us some evidence that with man it is impossible, but with God all things are impossible. So how do we know? How can we be sure that we are saved and satisfied for all eternity? Well, let's look at five different pieces of evidence. First, we will see the Father's gift. Jesus will ensure our satisfaction by pointing back to the Father's gift. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. God's promise and offer of salvation is not theoretical. It's not hypothetical or wishful thinking. God in his eternal plan says, all right, I'm going to send Jesus in hopes that people are going to look at him and see him. Oh, I hope they come and get him. I hope they see. I hope they partake. Jesus is not here on some fruitless mission. No, the strategy, that kind of strategy, we doomed to fail because of sin. Because sin blinds and deafens us all to the things of God. So God is the active agent in salvation, bringing people to salvation. All that the Father gives, not some, all. This all-encompassing God is giving to the Son a people. Later in this conversation, Jesus gives this perplexing and, and encouraging statement, really, in verse 44. Jesus says, No one can come to the Father unless the Father, all right, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And people have debated, and much ink has been spilled over these verses. We will look in two weeks deeper at this paragraph, but this is actually great encouragement for us. The calling of God is effective in the life of a believer. The Father is giving a son to the people. More than that, he's calling a bride for the people. It's not some random assortment of folks that just kind of wandered in following after Jesus. 
No, the father has gone out and found specific individuals and brought them to the banqueting table as a gift for his son. He's clothed them in wedding garments and given us a seat at the table. That's encouraging. That God has opened our eyes and we have freely chosen to follow after Jesus. And once there, the father presents us as a gift to Jesus. But what happens? So the father brings the people to Jesus. So is Jesus like some TV bachelor and saying, I'll take you, I don't want you. I'll take you, I don't want you. Does Jesus do that? No. The evidence here goes further. The father's gift and also the son's reception. Verse 37 is a glorious truth. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Those who the Father brings, those who come to Jesus, those who freely choose to walk after him, Jesus will not cast out. We may believe we may take our seat at the wedding table to sit down, take our seat, and Jesus is going to find us and be like, what are you doing here? I know your past. I know your present. Get out of here. Is some holy bouncer going to come and just like throw you out? Is some accuser going to come and walk in and say, hey, this guy doesn't deserve to be here? Well, Pastor John Bunyan in the 1600s wrote a whole book on this phrase out of one verse. And if you read Gentle and Lowly, you might be familiar with this exchange. And so if we can come to the Heavenly Father, we come to Jesus think, ah, he's, he's going to take me for a little while, but then he's going to kick me out. He's going to receive me for a time, but I'm not good enough to stay. So John Bunyan gives this exchange. But I'm a great sinner, say you. I will never cast out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner, say you. I will never cast out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner. I am a backsliding sinner. I have, certain, I have served Satan all of my days. I have sinned against light. I have sinned against mercy. I have done no good thing. I will never cast out, says Christ. This promise was provided to answer all objections and answers them fully. Jesus will not cast you out. If you have come, he will not betray you. And more than that, he, do, he not only receives you, he protects you. So we see the son's reception and the son's protection. Verse 39, I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. He won't throw us away. No one can carry us out. We're not going to slink back into our sin. Nothing can se separate us from the love of Christ. We don't have time, but I encourage you to go read through Romans 8 this afternoon when Paul puts up all of these theoretical, hypothetical questions that nothing can separate us from God's love. Not death, not life, not angels, not demons, not even yourself can separate you from God's love. Because the Son has received you, the Son is protecting you. So some may think that they have salvation, but fear that they can lose it. Some may think they can never lose that salvation, but they're troubled without that they ever had it. Jesus' words here emphatically oppose those two notions. That you can't lose the salvation because the Son protects you. You can have faith and assurance that you have it because you've come to Jesus. So if you've come to Jesus, he's accepted you because the Father has brought you to him. If the Father has given you to Jesus, he won't lose you. And we know this more because the fourth piece of evidence is all of this is according to the Father's will. Our fourth assurance here is God's sovereign and providential plan and purposes are working to see you saved and assured and protected in the Son. 
His majestic, authoritative, sovereign, and gracious purpose is seeing all this happen in your life. And Jesus mentions the will of God four times in this passage, so we should pay attention to it. So the God who called darkness out of light to make the universe begin has given you light of the knowledge of the glory of Jesus in your heart. The one who knits you together in your mother's womb has caused you to be born again. The God who holds every molecule in motion keeps you in his love right now. The God who will one day overthrow the universe with the word and conquer all evil will bring you safely home to be with him one day. This is the Father's will for us who see and believe in Jesus. And this gives us great assurance. So the last and final piece of evidence is the believer's assurance. And it comes from the phrase, on the last day. So twice in this paragraph and seven more times in the chapter, Jesus will use that phrase, on the last day, looking forward to eternal life and to resurrection. So Jesus is saying, I'm not going to satisfy you. I'm not going to fulfill you just for this life, but forever, for, to the last day and beyond. If you've come to the Father, you've been accepted and protected of the Son until the end of time, now and forever, this is not in doubt. And he uses it in two ways here in verse 39 and 40. He says, I should raise it up on the last day, and I will raise him up on the last day. And those two pronouns, I will raise it and I will raise him, are two aspects of our being. Why does he change it there? Why does he go from it to him? I think he makes this change because we all know of people who have partaken of Jesus' body and blood and have died physically. Jesus himself says, those who ate the manna in the wilderness, all of them died. All the people who ate the bread in the desert in chapter 6, well, they're all dead. All of us will soon die if we've partaken of the Lord's table. So this is why Jesus gives this little indication, I will raise it. What's the it? What's your physical body? So he says, I'm going to raise the physical body and the soul on the last day, reunite them together, and we will be together forever, seated seated at the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is assurance that God cares for the soul and the body. So on the last day, we will be made complete and perfect and satisfied in Jesus because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And we are immediately, completely, continually, eternally satisfied with him and made whole. The omnipotent power and will of God as the Father works the propitiation and the intercession of the Son, it brings many sons to glory. This is the promise of the gospel. This is the challenge for us today. So in our lives, we continually try to fill our hearts, our bodies, our stomachs, our minds, our souls with something that will satisfy. And even if we are satisfied in the moment, we wake up the next morning hungry and wanting more. There's a Florida Gator joke in here somewhere that you won last night, right? Amen. It's a long season, brother. <laughs> you may be satisfied with the 60 points over Ball State, Tennessee fans, but it's a long season. We may rejoice in the morning. We may weep in the night. But we always wake up wanting more. And we all love parties filled with good fellowship and good food even though centered around a football game or a sport that most of us don't even care about. But do we live our lives going from party to party, from banquet hall to buffet table, seeking to fill our longings and desires? Stop your searching and come to Jesus. 
Have you gorged yourself on the things of this world and found yourself sick? Come to Jesus and be healed and be nourished. Are you tired of eating all the empty calories that this world and culture serves up and desire to be fulfilled and nourished with something more? Come to Jesus and be fulfilled. Have you spoiled your appetite for Christ by only snacking on devotional crumbs while a full meal awaits you at the table? Come to Jesus and be satisfied. When we see and believe in Jesus, when we come to him, our souls will be graciously, completely, and eternally satisfied and fulfilled without cost, without price. His invitation is open to all of us. Come, eat, and live. Let's pray.